there is a new Mission Impossible movie out. I haven't seen it, but I love the Mission Impossible stories. Um, in Mission Impossible, Tom Cruise is given the impossible mission to prove he can really act. Um, that's part of it. He, he plays Ethan Hunt, and Ethan Hunt is part of the Impossible Mission Force. And through extreme, impossible, heroic, sacrificial measures, Tom Cruise, I mean Ethan Hunt, saves our nation from destruction. And he does that again and again and again, and he gets a lot of flack for it. We can rely on what Ethan Hunt does for our nation, and we don't have to do it ourselves. God is not asking us to do the impossible to be saved. But the Apostle Paul, as we've been reading in Romans chapter 9 and we're into chapter 10, uh, was dealing with a, a people who had the idea that we did need to do the impossible to be saved. And, and so he's addressing that. He says in verse 1 of chapter 10 that his heart's desire and prayer to God for, for Israel is for their salvation he says, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. What's, what was the problem with their knowledge? The problem was that they had the notion that uh, they were able to establish their own righteousness by doing good, by being doing the best they could to keep God's law. And um, the, the way of, of receiving righteousness has never been by keeping God's law. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Paul writes in, in verse 4 of chapter 10, Christ is the fulfillment of the law. He's the goal of the law. He's what the, the law always pointed to. He perfectly obeyed the law himself. He fulfilled it in his death. He fulfilled it in his resurrection. And he grants righteousness to us as a free gift. And so Christ is the end of the law. He's the, the end of the wrong use of the law to try to justify yourself, try to make your righteousness acceptable to God. So today we're going to look more at, at how God is not asking us to do the impossible to be saved. And we're to rely upon what he's done for us and receive that by faith. So would you stand with me? We're going to read from Romans chapter 10, verses 5 to 13. Romans 10, 5 to 13. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven? That is, to bring Christ down. Or, Who will descend into the abyss? That is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Father, grant us your spirit to understand more of Christ, to, to trust in him, to delight ourselves in him, to rely upon him completely for righteousness. 
thank you for giving them to us as a gift. May your word do its work in our lives. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Let me see it. So Paul starts in verse 5 by quoting from the Old Testament book of Leviticus. Leviticus 18.5. The context of that chapter is a list of moral prohibitions, things you're not supposed to do. Um, by obeying these laws, the Israelites would distinguish themselves from the uh, Egyptians from which they had been delivered, and they would distinguish themselves from the Canaanites into the land that they were going into. And if they failed to observe these laws, they would be cut off from their people, and the land would, as it says, vomit them out. So uh, while those who kept them would continue to enjoy life within the promised land, that is, as, Paul, as, as Moses wrote, the person who does these things will live by them. So the language of Leviticus 18.5 is summarizes the essence of righteousness based on the law. The blessings of living in God's promise comes by doing, comes by doing. While obedience to the law was the way of enjoying the blessings of the covenant, keeping the law was never the way of salvation, never the way of being counted right in God's sight. As Paul has made clear in chapters 2 and 3 of Romans, by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Pursuing getting right with God by works leaves you wondering, can I ever do enough? How do I know I've made the grade? Is God grading on the curve? I don't know. I don't, I'll do more. What do I need to do to, to, to really buy in with God? But as Paul says in verse 6, the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. So, once again, Paul is quoting the Old Testament law to prove that you're not saved by keeping the law. He's quoting from Deuteronomy 9.4 in the first few words there. Uh, Do not say in your heart. And in Deuteronomy 9, Moses wrote, Do not say in your heart, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess the land, the promised land. It's not my righteousness. God goes on to say, it's because I'm fulfilling my promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Because I'm a, I'm a promise fulfiller, I'm a promise keeper, I'm going to ensure that you pull it off, whether you deserve it or not. The original context then con- connects with Paul's point in Romans, don't presume God is fulfilling his promise to you because of your righteousness. So it is with faith righteousness Paul is talking about. Righteousness based on faith is received as a gift from outside yourself. It is not as a result of your doing, but is received by your believing. It is not as a result of your doing, but received by your believing. Then Paul quotes from Deuteronomy 30, verses 11 to 14. So see the original context. We'll get that up on the screen, I think. We have that there. This is Moses writing to Israel. For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, Neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, Who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, Who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. This is just totally, total silliness for a moment. Can you indulge me in just a little bit of silliness? For just a moment. 
my uh, kids showed me a, a, a YouTube video about a motivational speaker. And he was doing this, just do it! Just do it! I don't know if that's how Moses was saying that to the people, but if that motivates you, then I hope that works. I don't know. You're not blessed. It's really, and you don't know if the guy's serious or not. I don't know. Okay, so now done with silliness, we're all straight from here on out. You can go back to sleep. Since Christ is the fulfillment of the law, Paul sees Christ as fulfilling Deut- Deuteronomy 30, 12 to 14, in a more glorious way. Not just the words of God, but God himself coming near in Jesus. Paul shows that just as the law was not something hidden and distant from the Israelites, so likewise the gospel of faith righteousness is not something hidden or distant from from those Paul writes to. It's freely available both to Jews and Gentiles to the gospel he proclaims. So back to verse 6, where Paul's quoting from Moses. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down. Don't think that by some superhuman effort you need to attempt the impossible mission and ascend to heaven as if to bring Christ down. We think that we need to pursue extreme experiences to get right with God or to get close to God. As far as being right with God, we should feel the impossibility of any amount of our efforts doing to bridge the gulf between His holiness and our sins. So we need to feel it's not possible for me just to do the best I can and and make myself right with God. Um, Don't we don't need to holy underwear to be right with God. And that's, um, uh, never mind. We don't need human priests or elaborate systems of spiritual techniques or technology or secret knowledge to be right with God. The word's right there to us. The word is straightforward to us through the gospel. Um, God already did the most extreme act ever. He already came to us as a man the Son of God in human flesh. As John wrote in John chapter 1, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. As he says in verse 7, or who will ascend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. Again, does someone need to go to the abyss, the dwelling place of the dead? Would it, would it take this kind of extreme, miraculous effort to bring Christ up from the dead? Of course, that is absurd. If it even was possible, the effort would be wasted, for God has already raised Christ from the dead. So, We don't need to do extreme efforts in order to to be righteous in God's sight. Verse 8, but what does it say? What does the the law say? What does Deuteronomy 30 say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we proclaim. You don't need to pursue extreme efforts to get right with God. Such efforts have a 100% failure rate. God has come near to us. He has made himself acceptable to us by coming to us in his Son. The word of God is near you. We can speak it. 
The Word is in our hearts. It is both a, a truth that we can verbalize and trust in with our hearts. In Christ, the culmination of God's law, the Word of God is near to us in a way that it never has been before. Paul calls the truth we need to believe for righteousness the word of faith we proclaim. The word of faith we proclaim. What is the content? What is the focus of this word of faith? Well, he tells us in, in verse 9. It is, in verse 9, it is confessing with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believing with our hearts that God raised him from the dead. If we believe these things, we will be saved. What will, what will we be saved from? From God's wrath in the day of judgment. You can deny that God will visit his wrath upon us, upon people, and you can think that if he does, that it's wrong for him to do so. But it doesn't change the fact that, that this is what the Bible says we need to be saved from. A couple of weeks ago, there was an article in the New Yorker about the, the big earthquake that's supposed to happen here in the Northwest. And uh, that it's likely to devastate the area. Uh, we can deny that the, the quake will be that bad and criticize the article for, for stirring up fear. But if such a devastating quake is coming, it is not wrong to be warned about it. So it is with the wrath of God. But many people question how it is that merely believing, how does disbelieving these truths, how does this really save us from God's judgment? How does it grant us eternal life? How is believing that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead, um, how can that be the way to be saved from God's judgment? Paul said in, in verse 4 of chapter 1 that Jesus was declared the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. The apostles staked their lives on the reality that Christ had been bodily raised from the dead and, and that, therefore, he was Lord and Savior of the world. In the days of the early church, in, under the Roman Empire, you could believe what, what you wanted. You had freedom of religion. But uh, you couldn't say anyth anything as Lord over Caesar because you had to confess Caesar as Lord. But the confession of the early church was Jesus is Lord. What are we being pressured to call Lord? The Supreme Court? There's actually a Supreme Court over the Supreme Court. As Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, because Christ was successful in his mission to die on the cross for our sins, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In confessing and believing this, you are saying you can't save yourself. Only Jesus Christ the Lord can. Only he is Lord over sin and death. Only Jesus the Lord has a perfect righteousness that he can gift us as we unite him by faith. So it is not an arbitrary religious hoop to jump through to say that to be saved from um, 
to be saved, that you must confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You are confessing and trusting in the greatest truth in the universe about the greatest one who accomplished the greatest salvation. Paul isn't saying that if you only confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and only believe with your heart God raised him from the dead. It's not as if you do that the other way. You, um, you, you confess him as raised from the dead and believe he is Lord, but you got it wrong. You, you believe and confess both truths. But if there is any distinction, declaring Jesus as Lord is the supreme summary conclusion of the fact that God raised him from the dead. So because God raised him from the dead, it proves he is Lord over all things. It's worth noting that in three consecutive verses, verses 8, 9, and 10, Paul says this word of faith involves both our hearts and mouths. So let's talk about that. Why does Paul emphasize both heart and mouth? So in verse 10 he says, For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Because saving faith involves both heart trust and confessible truth. Just saying the words, Jesus is Lord, won't save you. If you don't trust and treasure Jesus is Lord from your heart, Jesus is Lord is not like a magic phrase that downloads salvation into us. It's not like a password that gets us into heaven, whether we're God's enemy or friend. As Paul said in Philippians 2 that we just referred to, uh, Every person, <clears throat> saved or not, will one day confess Jesus as Lord. God isn't just trying to get us to say the words like a child who, when he has done wrong, and his parents say, say you're sorry. Sorry. When you know their heart isn't in it. And that's not what God is trying to get us to do. Just say the words, Jesus is Lord. Come on, say it, say it. It's not the point. In Western church tradition... American church tradition, we speak of a person getting saved when they pray the prayer. You know the prayer. Um, now, we don't want to say that praying a prayer is wrong in asking God to save you. In fact, it's right to do that. In fact, that's what Paul's talking about in verses 12 and 13, calling upon the Lord, praying and asking God to save. <clears throat> But sometimes the way we talk about praying the prayer, praying the prayer, is if it's as if it's um, like a, there's a prayer out there somewhere that can make it like a formula that if you just say the words, you're saved without a doubt. I'm not saying most of us mean it that way, but we just need to be careful how we talk about praying the prayer. Uh, sometimes we hear uh, there's a, there's been an event or something that's gone on and there's been an evangelistic appeal. And um, so, say last week, 25 people prayed the prayer and were saved. Well, I hope so. But somewhere I read that if they confessed with their mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in their hearts, God raised him from the dead, they were saved. So that's, what's, that's what is essential to the heart of how we pray and what we're asking God to do. We have been talking about the fact that heart and mouth must both be involved in saving faith. And we just looked at why confessing the right words without 
heart trust doesn't reflect saving faith, now we need to consider how heart faith only without confessible truth is not saving faith. So how much truth do you need to know for saving confession? For saving confession of faith, how much do you need to know? Well, enough to know that Jesus is Lord and enough to be able to say that um, God raised him from the dead. You don't have to exhaustively understand what that means. No one does or can ever. But you should have some comprehension that he is supreme over all as son of God. Jesus is supreme over all as son of God. That you are committing and submitting to, to your life to him as Lord. And you need to believe that God raised Jesus bodily from the dead and that his death and resurrection were necessary for our, salva- our salvation. He didn't save us just by, um, just by loving us merely. He's, he loved us in his salvation, but it wasn't just his love that saved us. It was his love expressed in his death and resurrection that saved us. It's the primary work he came to do in his first coming. His teaching and miracles were very important, parts of his ministry, of course, but you can't say you have a saving belief in Jesus if you deny his death and bodily resurrection. Sometimes we talk about Sam. I just made Sam up. We talk about Sam or whoever. Uh, We say Sam asked Jesus into his heart. And that's another phrase we use that uh, has truth in it, but it's not in the Bible, but we use it all the time. I say, Sam asked Jesus, Jesus into his heart. Sam can't tell you what he believes about Jesus, but he did pray and ask Jesus into his heart, so we know he's saved. This is an example of heart belief that isn't grounded in at least what Paul says is a core minimum truth content. So our goal with the gospel is the word of faith which we proclaim is not just to get people to ask Jesus into their hearts. It's to lead them to know, to trust in, and submit to the truth that Jesus is Lord over all, Son of God, and who was raised from the dead for our salvation. Then in verse 11, Paul quotes Isaiah 28, 16. Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Everyone who believes in him will not face judgment. People criticize Christians for all kinds of things. People criticize Christians for insisting that we are saved only by believing in certain truths about Jesus rather rather than whatever we like to believe about him. And they criticize that as being narrow-minded and dogmatic. The issue is not narrow-mindedness. It's, is it true? It's not narrow-minded to say that if you jump out of an airplane from 15,000 feet, the only way to be saved and not be ashamed by splatting on the ground is um, by opening your parachute. So you can see two people falling from the sky, and one saying, hey, to be saved, you got to open your chute. You're being narrow-minded. I can fall any way I want to fall. Whatever I believe is right. But it's not being narrow-minded. Is it true? And soon the truth will bear itself out, won't it? But the promise of salvation of the word of faith we proclaim is for everyone who believes. That's very broad-minded. It's not, it's not a narrow gospel. It's for everyone who believes. There are none who are better candidates for salvation than others. No privileged elite with secret credentials. 
for everyone who believes. Verse 12, he says, There's no distinction between Jew and Greek or Jew and Gentile, for the same Lord is Lord of all. Although the Jews had great advantages in being the descendants of Abraham, in receiving God's revealed truth and, and covenant, in the provision for forgiveness of, through the appointed sacrifices and, and all that they were given from God. There's no distinction between Jew and Gentile in terms of needing to be saved through faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus is Lord over Jew and Gentile. There was a, a feature on National Public Radio this week talking about um, the awkward relationship between evangelical Christians and Israel. And evangelical Christians are uh, major supporters of Israel. But it's kind of awkward because evangelical Christians say in order for Israelites to be saved, they must believe in Jesus Christ. So they say, hey, thank you for the help, but we're not so sure about the reasons for your help. But you can continue to help us, but we don't like the reason you're helping us, but thank you anyway. And why do we say that? Well, we say it because the Bible says whether you're Jew or Gentile of whatever stripe, you need Christ to save you. And he richly saves us. He bestows his riches on all who call upon him. Do you know how rich Jesus is? Well, he's certainly among the wealthiest men in America. He actually has, has more money than Bill Gates. Even more than Donald Trump. Yeah. He trumps Trump. And even more than Russell Wilson's new upgrade in his pay. And, and he, doesn't, <laughs> he, he doesn't have a, an expired contract, contract expiration date. Paul speaks in other places of, of the riches of Christ. What are his riches? He speaks about the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. Um, talks about strengthening us according to the riches of his glory the riches of his glory, which is Christ in you. So Christ being in your life, is he does that very richly. He downloads his wealth to you, in you. His riches are unsearchable. They can't be measured or exhausted. Christ's spiritual riches are so inexhaustible that he pours them out generously on all who call upon him. On all who call upon him. Jesus doesn't have an economy based on scarcity. Unlimited resources. Well, I've just got a little bit for everybody to be on one low, little doling out little bits to everybody. No. He generously, richly pours out on all who call upon him for salvation. He freely, generously gives it. And then verse 13 quotes from Joel, not Joel Richter, although he could do that. Joel, the prophet, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Actually, the context of Joel, uh, of that verse, is worth reading. I'll just read it to you. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So this is a reminder that being saved is salvation from the coming day of, of the Lord's wrath. It isn't just salvation from problems and struggles we have in this life, though God enormously helps us out with problems and struggles we have in this life. 
in the Old Testament book of Joel, to call upon the Lord was to call upon God. So now to call upon Jesus is to call upon God. Paul is taking great pains in, the, in these last three verses to emphasize that everyone, everyone, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. The only reason people will not be saved is that they do not call upon Jesus to save them. The reason people don't call upon the name of the Lord, the reason that people don't confess Jesus is, as Lord is they don't trust in him. They don't treasure him and his way of salvation. By definition and by default, they are trusting in themselves or other things. Thank you, Jesus, for saving me. Thank you for richly pouring out your grace. Thank you for rescuing me from your wrath. Jesus has come close. He's gotten really close. In fact, he invites you to sit across the table from him. He's not just saving you from the wrath of God. He's saving you into a relationship with him. He's saving you so he can eat dinner with you. He can eat a meal with you. He can dine with you. That's what the communion meal is. To call on him. You don't have to shout. He's sitting right across the table from you. He said, the bread is my body. Do this in remembrance of me. He said, the cup, this cup given for you, is my blood poured out for you. It's the new covenant in my blood. He's fulfilled the old covenant. He's fulfilled the law. He's fulfilled all the efforts that we couldn't do. And he's perfectly obeyed the Father and he's paid the price with his blood. So now we, we trust and enjoy him. We have fellowship with him. We live in him. We serve him. We rest in him. So we're going to take the Lord's Supper together, the communion meal. Um, there's one spot for you to get it. It's going to be up here. So I'm going to pray for us, prepare our hearts. This is a meal for those who know they trusted in Jesus Christ. If you haven't yet trusted in Christ, it's not a meal for you to take because it's because what you're saying when you take the bread is I'm, I'm believing that in his body he came to save me. And by his shed blood he has saved me, and I'm trusting in him to save me. Um, it's totally possible that if, if you came in today not believing in Jesus and you are now believing in him because you've heard the message of Jesus, then you're ready to take this meal. The only sins that God can forgive are forgiven sins already in Christ. So this is a meal for forgiven sinners and those who have the life of Christ in them through, through his death and resurrection. So let's pray and, and prepare ourselves for receiving the elements. Father, you have given us the very best person in the universe, your son, Jesus. He who deserved only worship and exaltation and perfect obedience and who already was Lord, took the form of a bondservant. He humbled himself. He, he entered into our reality. He took on flesh and blood and made himself susceptible to death 
susceptible to temptation, susceptible to pain and sorrow and grief. And he perfectly obeyed you in a body. So this bread represents the body in which a body like ours, he perfectly obeyed you in. And in a body like ours, he became our substitute, our representative. And in his shed blood, by shedding his blood on the cross, he redeemed us from the curse of the law, from the works of the law that we never perfectly performed. He turned away your just judgment against us, and he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become your righteousness in him. So thank you, Father, for providing us this meal to remember. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. And he said, this is the covenant renewal meal. You continue again and again and again to renew the covenant by participating in this meal. So thank you, Father, for giving us so richly the life of Jesus for us. It's in his name we pray. Amen.